Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam and today I'm joined by guests Tracy and Lindsay. Hello. Hello. So this episode, I must say, isn't for everyone, so I would use your own discretion on whether or not to listen. Just a heads up. This case was recommended to us by Terry and so today I'm going to tell you about the Limbs in the Lock murder. So just a quick note to say that Caitlin isn't on this episode uh, this week because I buggered up our recording schedule last minute, so I apologise for this, but she will be back next time. Meanwhile, I give a warm welcome to Lindsay and Tracy because they love everything and anything true crime. We do. Absolutely. We're like Annie Wilkes out of Misery times two. We're so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so we'll just begin and we'll start off with the usual because you've probably heard of it, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, have you heard of this one? Yes, yes, I Un- have. Unlike you, Sam, because you never know any of them, but mm-hmm. we have heard of this one. Yes, we? we definitely have. Yes, yep. I'm interested what? to find out more though because I know the I know the title of it and I can think of some of the details, but I'm quite interested to get into a bit more of the mm-hmm. the details. What about you? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic okay well I'll try and figure out if there's something that I can teach you from it but you'll probably know it from start to finish but I'll begin anyway um on Saturday the 4th of December 1998 18 year old Barry George Wallace headed to his works Christmas night out in a hotel in Luden Road in Kilmarnock also heads up I'll probably pronounce things wrong as usual just bear with me don't worry we'll correct you <laughs> Barry lived in Kilmarnock with his family and he worked at Tesco's which is a supermarket and Barry was described as a shy but popular lad very pleasant and kind he was aiming to also have a future in the Royal Navy at the Christmas party that night there was understandably a lot of alcohol consumed because that's what Christmas parties are about Mm -hmm, of course yep Now, as the party in the hotel was coming to an end, Barry left the hotel shortly after 1am, which now takes us into Sunday the 5th of December 1999. Mm -hmm. He set off on foot towards the town centre of Kilmarnock and he was seen to be staggering all over the place in a drunken state. And he was actually picked up by one of his colleagues' dads in his car. The colleague had been picked up from the party by her dad and on their drive home, they passed Barry in a state and got him into the car. However, Barry wasn't yet ready to go home. He wanted the party to continue, so said he was going to meet some pals at a club in town. And so he's dropped off near the shops, Marks and Spencer. Barry headed to a nightclub called Expo, where outside he had an altercation with his friend Graham Bokes. They threw a few punches at each other. However, this isn't a huge deal because they did make up right after and they shook hands. So there's nothing strange going on here. Barry was last seen alive at the entrance to the Expo nightclub at around 1.30am in the early hours of Sunday the 5th of December. Barry did not return home on Sunday. This alarmed his parents. However, he did say to them before heading out the night before that he won't be back until Sunday because he'll be out drinking and, you know, with his pals. But Barry did not turn up for work on Monday the 6th of December. And so he was then 
reported to the police as a missing person. Now, one of these coincidental moments of being in the right place at the right time happened on the morning of the 6th of December. This wasn't a good moment, however, so it wasn't one of those ones. But the mor that morning, a number of police officers from an underwater search unit from Central Scotland Police were in a training exercise involving diving into the waters of Loch Lomond, which was near, here we go, Rowan, Rowardenon Pier. Which well is part done, that's correct. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now operations began between 10 and 10:30 a.m. and in the course of this exercise one of the members of the underwater search unit came across two plastic bin liner bags submerged in the water one bag contained a human hand an associated part of the arm the other a human foot and the associated part of that leg these discoveries prompted further searches of the lock and obviously that training exercise was completely put to the side. On Tuesday the 7th of December 1999 part of an arm with the hand attached was found and on the following day Wednesday the 8th part of a human leg and thigh was discovered again in the area at the pier of Rowardenon. On Friday the 10th of December searches conducted in the water and in the area of the pier at Balmaha resulted in a recovery of part of a lower leg with the foot attached. On Wednesday the 15th of December, due to the interest of a dog, a member of the public, always the case, reported the finding of a human head partially contained in a poly bag, which is a plastic shopping bag. Thankfully, when I walk my dog, I've never came across anything like that. Because it always seems to be a dog walker, isn't it, that finds it, yeah. I, I refuse to get a dog. It's not getting walked. <laughs> <for that> very <laughs> exactly. Now, this was appeared washed up on the sea, so which was on the beach of Barisay, which is near Troon. Roughly three weeks later, on the 8th of January 2000, as a result of further searches in the waters of Loch Lomond, a human torso was recovered in Man's Bay, which is about 1.5 miles distance from Balmaha. So parts of this body that have been discovered are, you know, they're close to each other, but they're not exactly right next to each other. Now, you might be thinking, who on earth could have done this awful thing? And this was the doings of a man known as William Frederick Ian Beggs. William Beggs was born in Moira in County Down in Northern Ireland on the 4th of October 1963. Now bear with me because I'm going to go through William's life and everything else and then at the end we'll go back to Barry. Mm -hmm. Okay. William was the eldest of five with two younger brothers and two younger sisters. His father, also William, was a lecturer at a college and his mum Winifred was a head teacher. William was brought up in a staunch Protestant household with right-wing ideologies such as homophobia. Even with this upbringing though, William realised at an early age that he was also attracted to men, but that didn't stop him from following his parents' beliefs, which got deeper into which he got much deeper into as a young adult. William was a loner and quote quite creepy 
during his schooling years and he wasn't interested in making friends and being with other classmates. He would lock himself in his room, listen to heavy metal music and sing along to it, which does not make you a killer, but this is just him. Now, no one wanted to be his friend and nobody would sit next to him, particularly women, as he made people feel really uneasy. On a Duke of Edinburgh expedition, which is um, it's an expedition for young people, I think you have to be under the age of 21 or 25, I'm not too sure, where you go in a group and you walk in the hills and you camp and it's really, you know, you do outdoorsy things. He shared a tent with a young man and this man woke up during the night with razor blades in his sleeping bag. So this obviously resulted in William sleeping on his own. But, you know, that's a red flag. When he was a teenager, he also joined an anti-gay campaign. However, he was later removed as the leader suspected William himself was gay and in denial. After school, he applied to uni and he joined he joined the Ulster Volunteer Force. So they are an Ulster Loyalist parliamentary group in Northern Ireland. It emerged in 1966 and that's all I know about that. However, they are the sort of groups that like to give their own justice, such as they are violent towards um, paedophiles and this could be with beatings but also shootings. But they're also violent towards homosexuality because they put them in the same box as paedophilia. Now members of the UVF learnt of William being gay and so they gave him a choice to either leave Northern Ireland quietly or stay and suffer the consequences. William left Northern Ireland, which I would do, and headed to Middlesbrough in England in 1982 and enrolled into a course in public administration in Teesside Polytechnic. During this course, William became the regional chairman for the Federation of Conservative Students, which is so right wing to the fact that he even got invited to attend an event at Downing Street by the one and only Maggie Thatcher. So, oh dear, oh dear. Yeah. But I'll no let you. Yeah. That's when it all went wrong. That's when it all went wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Now, I'll let you make your own decisions on that one. But like you said, <laughs> that's probably where it went wrong. Uh, now, it went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> in 1985, he left this position, though, due to an argument over the disagreement of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Now, I'm not hugely aware of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. I know it was big. Um, but yeah, that's where my information stops on that. Now, William graduated in 1987 and students described him as quiet and a closed book. However, he was living a double double life at university because he often cruised about in his car picking up young men and he frequented Newcastle's nightclubs, particularly the gay ones, the gay scene. Now, this is where he started to show up on the police's radars because there was reports of him cutting young men with razor blades. There was a police inquiry, but no charges were brought against him. Now, this was because the young men that were getting cut by razor blades, they're not going to come forward. Yes, it's not illegal to be gay in the late 80s. However, it was still very rife with homophobia and 
hate crime and everything like that. So why on earth would they come forward? It would just jeopardise their lives more. Now, the police didn't put William off as in May 1987, the body of a young 28-year-old student, Barry Oldham, was found in a country lane in North Yorkshire with a slit throat and his body looked as though his attacker was trying to get rid of his remains with cuts and slits on the limbs as if they were trying to be cut off but unsuccessfully. Before his murder, Barry had met up with a man in one of Newcastle's A nightclubs and went back to his house. He started a short-term relationship with this man and the police very quickly determined that this was William Beggs. They had both went on a camping trip to the Yorkshire Moors, but William had come home alone. William was arrested and questioned in connection with the murder, and he told the authorities that Barry had made homosexual advances towards him on their trip and attacked him, so he had killed him in self-defence. Which, self-defence is fair enough, but when you're trying to cut up the body, I don't think so. William was charged... I don't think that's quite self-defence right enough, do you? No, I think that, um, yeah, I think I think we've clearly ascertained that mm-hmm. William was gay, but obviously very, you know, in denial about it. Absolutely. Man. Now, William was charged with the murder of Barry, and this man was Barry Oldham, and he was found guilty by the jury on one count of murder and two counts of attacking. William, however, only served... 18 months of this sentence before being released. The prosecutor. 18 months. So not even two years. That's no long, eh? No. Sorry, I'm quite shocked, Sam. Mm -hmm. And this is for murder. 18 months of this sentence. But I'll tell you why. The prosecution during the original trial had linked up the attacks on previous men with the slashings along with the murder of Barry just to show that this was a pattern. So with, you know, the razor blade slashings of other men. However, this was not something the judges agreed with in his appeal and said it didn't allow him to have a fair trial. And so he was released. Just, but this was before the law came in and Scott's law or, you know, the one from Angus Sinclair where you could Mm -hmm. bring up. Double jeopardy. Yeah, exactly. Now, once released, he moved back to Northern Ireland, but he didn't last long there because he then moved to Kilmarnock in Scotland, where his new neighbours nicknamed him Fred West. Take from that what you will. Now, he did not turn his life around. He actually just became more violent, which isn't so much of a shock. In 1995, William was arrested for aggravated assault after he committed grievous bodily harm with a razor blade on a man that he had picked up. The victim, though, survived by jumping out of the window of his first floor flat, naked and bleeding. William had stood over him, slashing him with a razor, saying, this will be over soon. You made me do this. He was arrested and then given a psychological evaluation with the results saying he was a danger to society with regards to his abnormal personality. Due to this attack, William was sentenced to six years in prison. However, he only ended up serving 
three years of this sentence. Uh, three I don't know. years. Three years. I'm so, seeing a theme. Yeah, he's getting away with six days. <laughs> no, <laughs> three years this time. And he's getting away with everything. So it's not going to change his behaviour, is it? No, not at all. Now, he returned back to Kilmarnock and his neighbours attempted to actually get him evicted from his cul-de-sac and from his house. But he retaliated to this by buying the council flat that he lived in. So he bought the house and put up um, surveillance cameras and everything like that to deter folk from kind of getting in his way because kind of you know it happens it's I don't agree with it but people were going and you know vandalizing his house vandalizing his car spray paint and you know all of the things that come with being a murderer and getting released which yeah I get it now despite his criminal record he enrolled into Paisley University and he graduated with a master's degree in information technology this allowed William to get a job in a call center in Edinburgh but he didn't move to Edinburgh. He, um, what do you call it? Goes back and forth. I just don't like travelling. Commuted. Commuted. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. it's not for me. Now, Travels backwards and forwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, throughout all of this, he went to local church um, in Kilmarnock and he had various camping trips throughout the years. And there are thoughts that throughout this time he may have killed more people. But there is no proof of this. However, there are definitely cold cases and missing persons and, you know, everything like that. So it is possible, but there's just no proof. And it's not like he's come forward and said this. But this now brings me back to the tragic murder of Barry Wallace. The night of Barry's death, he had been lured back to William's home, where his legs and arms were both handcuffed to prevent him from escaping. William physically assaulted Barry, drugged him and severely sexually assaulted him in very violent ways. Pathologists were unable on the basis of the autopsy, because obviously it was just parts of bodies, his body that was found. They weren't able to determine a definite cause of death. However, it is mentioned in a couple of sources that the harshness and physical pain due to the sexual assault may have caused Barry to go into shock and die. Now, scientific examination of the body parts that were later found using DNA techniques demonstrated that they were all parts of the body of Barry Wallace. So everything that was found was Barry. Now, po post-mortem examination revealed certain pre-mortem injuries, which included bruising to and fractures of the underlying bones of the face, areas of extensive bruising around the back area, linear marks on the wrists and ankles, consistent with these having been caused by the handcuffs, and a puncture mark on one of the arms, which co coincides with being drugged as it was a needle mark. Now, the ligature marks were so severe that it is said that Barry definitely did fight for his life. Over the next few days, William disposed of parts of Barry's body in poly bags in Loch Lomond. William did not attend work on the 6th of December, so that's the day after, that's the Monday. And on the 7th of December, he left work early due to illness. However, he boarded a ferry that went from Troon to Northern Ireland. 
It said this is where he disposed of Barry's head, as due to the tidal movements, this was later washed up onto Barrisey Beach, where it was found by the dog walker mentioned earlier. Back to the 10th of December 1999, William returned to Scotland via Stranraer, but travelled back to Belfast the following day. On the 12th of December, he returned back to Scotland via Troon. He returned as normal back to work on Monday the 13th of December 1999 and attended his workplace up to and including the 17th of December. Now, he did not return to work after that date because on the 17th of December, police had obtained a warrant and were searching his house. William found this out though via the radio. So he, of course, did not go home. He instead drove to Luton Airport in England, purchased a ticket for a flight to Jersey in the Channel Islands under the name of William Frederick. And then from the Channel Islands, he immediately purchased a ticket to Dinyard in France. And then from there, he went to the Netherlands. So he has escaped the UK completely. Now, on the 21st of December 1999, the Procurator Fiscal at Kilmarnock obtained a petition for William's arrest. Now, on the 28th of December, William, accompanied by a Dutch lawyer, surrendered himself to the Netherlands police in Amsterdam. And he was remanded in custody by a court in Amsterdam on the 29th of December 1999. Now, William's done this because he's just playing along with this all and he knows that it's not going to be quick. They're not, he's not going to be extradited right away so he can just get on with things. But during the police search in his house back on the 17th, a number of significant things were discovered blood a lot of blood which came from Barry I believe it was a one in a billion chance that it would not have been Barry's blood it was also all of the fabric and the carpets and the paint and the walls everything had recently been replaced but he clearly didn't do that great a job because there was still DNA also one huge part of the evidence was that all of the bags, all of the plastic bags that Barry was in, especially the one that his head was in, had been found in not a shed, but you know how you can have like an outhouse connected to your house where you can keep loads of stuff. These were found in William's house as they were very distinctive because they belonged to DFDS ferry line. So it wasn't like everybody had these. As a next step, though, we're going to jump forward to the 10th of January 2000. The Scottish authorities applied for William to be extradited back to Scotland. Now, his response was to that application. The Dutch court in Amsterdam, they obviously approved this, but William's response was kind of like, OK, make it what you will, but you're not going to do it anytime soon because he made a further appeal for this to not happen, but it was refused. It wasn't refused until the 26th of September 2000. So we've gone from January to September 
However, on the 14th of October 2000, the Netherlands Minister of Justice authorised the extradition and William was finally returned to Scotland on the 9th of January 2001. So this is practically a year later. He appeared before the Sheriff at Kilmarnock straight away as soon as he landed and then on the 17th of January 2001 he was served with you know when you have to go to court and you either plead guilty or not guilty but the trial finally took place on the 14th of September 2001 and it only lasted 17 days. Now, William Frederick Ian Beggs was found guilty of the murder of 18-year-old Barry Wallace with a minimum of 20 years. He did say it was a life sentence, but, you know, life never means life in this country. Now, I believe he still is in prison because I couldn't find anything saying otherwise. However, he still owns a house in Kilmarnock and he has cost the taxpayers thousands of pounds with appeals and other court proceedings just throughout his whole time in jail. One of his complaints was being that his human rights were taken away from him when he was in prison because the prison guards opened his mail and could see what he was doing. And also he had a computer in his cell, but he'd obviously have to give that back every time he used it. So he was like, well, where's my human rights? You can see everything I'm doing. But I'm sorry. Sorry, is that no what's meant to happen in prison, though? You would think. But I clearly. Thought get, so. I thought you did get your mail open and you would get checked what you're looking at because, if, if, you know, if you were yes. in there on, like, sexual assault or something charges, that mm-hmm. means you can look up anything on online. Exactly. But he was like, oh, I've got no human rights. But oh. there's a lot of articles. I won't go into them all. But it seems like practically almost every year he was complaining about something or going to court about another thing, appealing this, appealing that. Like he's just wasting time, money and resources. Okay. Now, all in all, I feel he is an evil man and this could have been probably prevented to a certain extent. But the final thing I'll say is a quote from former head of North Yorkshire CID. Detective Chief Superintendent Tony Fitzgerald. When we caught Beggs all those years ago, we seriously thought we had caught a serial killer in the making. We thought we were lucky because we had managed to catch him after his first killing. And that's the story of the tragic murders of Barry Oldham and Barry Wallace. What's your thoughts? Oh my goodness. I didn't realise it was that long ago, to be honest. I didn't realise it was 20 odd years ago. So actually, if he got 20 years, he'll be eligible for parole now. Yeah, he was probably eligible, I think it was 2019. However, maybe with COVID and stuff, it's delayed it, but there's nothing else um, online. Quite shocking and really sad to hear as well what, you know, um, Barry went through at the Mm -hmm. end. That's really upsetting. and. but to think as well that twice before he's been caught and then for a variety of reasons, as you say, he's kind of dodged the bullet and only served really minimal sentences. But actually, these people had to die. A really good story um, there, Sam. I actually think as well, the police doing the diving exercise, if they hadn't been Aye. doing that, it could have been quite a while till mm-hmm. any body parts were found. 
Exactly. Uh, it's luck. So, well, I don't know if I'd call it luck. <laughs> if I was on a diving exercise, I'd rather not be finding bits of limbs in the water, but never mind. Mm-hmm. Maybe lucky is not the right word. Um, yeah. But yeah, at least, I suppose for his family, at least they knew quite soon what, you it's know, so sad. what had happened. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. like you said, Lindsay, it's something that possibly could have been prevented. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. Well, hopefully lessons are learned from it. You know, when these things happen, we always need to look back and say, how did that happen and what could we do differently? And actually, I think he it sounds like he likes to play with the law, though, mm-hmm. considering he keeps putting in appeals mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. And then obviously there was appeals um, and the, the um, really short sentences before. So, But I would hope that even if he is due for parole or whatever, that depending on what sort of psychiatric assessments are mm-hmm. done, if he's still seen as a danger, which you know, it could still be a mm-hmm. danger to people, yeah. then hopefully that means that he might not be released. Hope not. Mm-hmm. We, yeah, we can only hope. 